our series 34384. Let me put the introductory verse that really is at the heart of this, of why we're going here, from Matthew chapter 16. I want to put that on the screen here. Look how what it reads. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let me just kind of give you a, a snapshot review of where we've gone here. The idea that Christ is wanting to build his church at this spot, within this gathering of people. And he wants us to be in step with him. And one of those steps is what he prays for in John chapter 17. There's this interesting text because before the night he goes to the cross, three times he prays for spiritual oneness for the future believers. That our unity would be so deep that people would look into those relationships and actually hear this. God loves the world and he sent his son. And that unity is not just valuable, it's absolutely necessary. It's foundation to Jesus building his church. But there can't be oneness, there can't be unity, unless people actually come together. Spend time together. Hebrews 10, don't give up meeting together as some have already begun to do. I want to put a piece that fits here. I haven't said this, but I think people don't realize. A faulty belief. See this for your notes. Too many Christians believe that they can actually grow to be mature in their faith and still make church optional. There is a correlation between the body of Christ, not the building, the body of Christ and our spiritual development. There's a plateauing effect if there is not a part of a gathered group of people. But there's another issue that holds people back from oneness and maturity as well. It's the way people approach the church. There's a, people come to church with a type of contract. And maybe to say it different, it's kind of like going to a meal at a restaurant. It's the exchange, I'll give you a little money if you give me the services. So they look at the menu and they look at the options. And you know, if the wait staff gives them a good amount of service, and if it doesn't work, they leave and look elsewhere. Rather than actually jumping into the kitchen and helping the staff and figuring out how to make that cafe better. See, people are looking for a perfect church, and they live it based on a contract. See, the fact is far too many people gather as a group, and it really is about their needs. Can why can't we buy a frappuccino here? Cappuccino's cheap. We've got to go frappuccino here, if you know what that is. Can, can't you preach a 20-minute sermonette instead of a longer sermon? I know I get long sometimes. But listen, God wants to build his church. And he wants something different for us as well. And I shared a phrase last week where at the center of it, if he's going to build this church, there has to be something different. A conference that I was at a number of months ago, the pastor tells his church this, and he tells his staff this. And there's a phrase, I said it last week, I put it up on the screen last week. Here's the phrase, it's not about you. As we gather together, it's not about just my needs, what I want. See, as he builds the church, it's about the other person. 
It's not a focus on the eye. That first church in Jerusalem, if you look at that, man, they were selling their stuff, they were giving it to the poor, they were taking care of people. It wasn't centered on the eye and just what my family wanted. It was about the other, about the people that aren't here. It's about the people that need Jesus. It's about those that are younger in their faith, that need to move toward maturity. And when they grow up, it's no longer about them. They figure that out in their family, and it's now about other people. But last week, to go farther in this review, it was kind of a hard sermon. Because here's the challenge. People look into the lives of people within local churches, and they're not seeing marriages that are working, and they're not seeing families that are working. And the fact is that a lot of young people are walking away from the body of Christ. They're rejecting a gathering like this. But here's a conviction of mine, that if we are going to be lights into this world, we've got to have families and marriages that represent Christ well. And a single's the same way. You represent Christ well. See, families and marriages, and as we live in this world, it needs to be shouting to the world a megaphone that Jesus is relevant. And I think some of those stats should force us as parents and as a church family at times to look in a mirror and go, what do we got to do different to increase the effectiveness in these areas? See, I, I think the challenge is local churches don't stop and ask the right questions. We need to be saying, is our disciple-making effective? What does the community see when they look into the lives of us as a body here, gathered here? Do they see something different? When we walk to work tomorrow, we go into the marketplace, our neighbors, do they see something different that's attractive? That's the review. For this morning, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We need to press into a little text here this morning, and it's a passage that I think demands much attention, especially if we're going to be making disciples. But here's the reality. To fill in that notes for you, here's what I said if you follow along in the outline. The gathering of God's people who are called the church, that's us, must be actively involved in the great mission of God. God is on a mission to restore and and to work and to reveal himself in this world, and he invites us into that. But this idea is really a key pillar of us as a local church. We're to be involved with it individually and collectively to represent God in this world. Look at Matthew 28. Let's read it here this morning. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, there are a couple of takeaways that we need to focus on this morning. The first one in your outline there, I said it this way. The Great Commission is relevant even if we think that we have not arrived spiritually. Disciple-making is relevant for every follower of Jesus. And why do I say that? It's because of verse 17. 
Look at, let me put that portion on the screen. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Uh, Do you realize, Scripture doesn't sugarcoat where people are at spiritually as you read through the Bible. But here's where we keep defaulting to. Disciple-making, when I use that term, that's for what pastors do. That's for what missionaries do overseas. If you go to Bible college, that's what they are supposed to do. Or it's, it's for those mature Christians who have their act together. No. Okay, if you're a parent here and you have young kids, if you believe that you're not ready to make disciples and be in the trenches of disciple-making, if you believe that, let me say this, you never should have had kids. Never. Why? Because the moment that child comes out of the womb, disciple-making is the start. Whether you think you're ready or not. And it starts at day one and it will not end until the day that you die. See, doubting actually, that word actually is really good news. See, Jesus did not say, for those that doubt, you gather in the corner over here. Plug your ears. I'm going to tell the group that's with it. And I'm going to give them a command. No, he didn't do that. There was doubters in that group, and he tells all of them, go make disciples. Just because you assume that you're not ready, God is saying, no, that's not an excuse. But notice another key piece here this morning. Verse 18, look how it reads. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, here's the second point that we need to unpack this morning. Number two there in the notes. The Great Commission, meaning disciple-making, starts with Christ's identity, not ours. I think we get scared of that, and we go, it's about us. I go, no. This is about Jesus' identity. Now, realize one of the nuances here, when you hear the Great Commission and you hear that phrase, oftentimes people leave actually verse 18 out. The authority of Jesus is the book cover of going and making disciples. It's the book that shows off, yes, teaching them how to do it and what to obey and all of those different pieces to it. That's inside, and we'll get there next week, okay? But in the outside, it's fundamentally about Jesus and his authority. Teaching but it starts with Jesus and his authority. You know know what? We live in a religious world where religious people, I think even in churches like ours, we want a Jesus with no authority. We want a nice Jesus. You know, one that's a, a nice moral man, an example of love. I heard a phrase we, we, that many churches want a tame Jesus. I think that's true. Let me put up some statements on the screen that that show his authority. And you see the breath of that word authority. First one there, authority to forgive sins. He actually forgives our sins. He has the authority to mediate our ugly stuff with the Father. 
authority to send the Holy Spirit into this world. He has authority to open the hearts and the minds of people. He has the authority to reveal the Father to people. He has the authority to actually give life to those whom He chooses. And He has the authority to raise up individuals on that last day. To catch the weight of this word authority. A power and authority. But the recognition, I, and I, I would say this, there are many churches out there that actually sanitize this issue of Jesus' authority and as to what he wants. Listen, before the incarnation, he was equal to the Father and he possessed all authority and power. So the authority and power is baked into his identity. You know, we went through the book of Mark a while back. When you think of rebuking storms, Seas, quiet. Be violent. He could do it. So we look at the nature and we get up and we, we look at the nature and you go, yeah, he's got authority there. But here's where we got to recognize it's more than just nature. It's more than nature. He actually has authority over the way we are created individually. Let me show you a passage, Psalm 139. Look how it reads here. For you are formed, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. And when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, and when as yet there was none of them. I ponder this passage because it really is staggering and deep really to ponder. God put together our physical forms. How we're actually built. The way we process information. The way we think. And not only that, if you know Christ is your Savior, He's actually created you uniquely in the spiritual realm as well. He's given you spiritual gifts that are to be used to build up other people, the body of Christ. I didn't get to this passage last week, but look at Ephesians chapter 4 here. I just want to bring this back. Instead of speaking the truth in love, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him the whole body joined together, held together by every supporting ligament, and that's individual people and groups of people, grows and builds itself up in love. But look at this. As each part, each person does its work. He's created us uniquely to work within the body of Christ so that the body would be built. People would mature, would be strengthened. People would come to know him. Do, do we catch that all authority is even in the spiritual realm? You know, we could spend weeks on 1 Corinthians 12 looking at the different diversity of gifts. I don't think I've ever done it since I've been here. But we recognize that it's even beyond the way he made us, our spiritual gifts. There's another area that comes under his authority. And it's this. It's where you're at, where you've been placed, why you're in this community. Look at Acts chapter 17. 
This fits with his authority. Acts 17.24 The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is it served by human, human hands, as though he needed anything. See, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us. Here, God, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Father, in Acts 17 is saying God is active. Now, it also implies that God doesn't need us, yet he chooses to use us, but he's active in working in a world and intricately evolved even where we live. We keep getting this idea of God like a a wind-up clock. And then he just, he, he lets it go. Now, for your parents that have digital, you have to explain what a wind-up clock is. I just realized that in the first sermon. Some of, some of your kids won't know what that is. But he's involved in even the locations of where we live and work. And he's working. And it's because of his authority. Now, I don't know if you caught something at the Acts 17, if you caught the phrase that I underlined there, right at the end. God is not far from each of us. So here's where we we get up in the morning, we see a great sunrise or a great sunset, and we go, boy, God, you are at work. We see it all around us in creation, and we go, amen. But how does this apply to disciple-making? to going and making disciples. Well, okay, let me throw a question at you. Think of, do you know of one person at your work or neighbor or whatever, can you put a name to a face that says they don't know Jesus? They don't know Christ. Picture that person just for a moment. Now, do you know that God is not far from them. Do you realize that? He's not far from them. God is near to them. And you go, why? It's because of this. You are near to them. You're a neighbor, a coworker, a friend. Folks, when we have the Holy Spirit within us, Understand, when we bump into people, God's not far from them. Why? Because we also are here. There's other pieces to it as well. You know, if you're a student, if if you're a, a parent, whatever, think of the people, is that when you bump into the people every day, that we are to be used by God to bring God closer to them. We're to be bringing God close to the people that we come in contact with. Matter of fact, it even applies in our families. As a husband, I am called to bring God closer to my wife, to encourage her, build her up. Will she see God coming close to her through me? Even as a parent, 
Do you realize that if you're a parent here today, that you, that part of your duty is to bring God closer to your children? And it's because of Christ's authority that we can do that. But shouldn't this push us toward really serious discipling, even in the parenting realm? The idea that we are called to bring our children closer to God intentionally. You know, over the years, there's been a couple statements by parents that I've heard, and they'll say something like this. You know, I'm just going to let my child... Find God on their own. Choose him. Um, Can I say what I want to say? That's dumb parenting. That really is. That's like bringing your kids to a busy four-lane road and say, God's across there. Just, you'll find your way. You go, no. That's not smart parenting. You work hard figuring out what it means as a parent to bring God to your children intentionally. Parents got to figure that out. But understand, all of this comes under the umbrella of his authority. And so we must take it seriously if he's stating by all authority, go, make disciples, teaching them to observe all things. But let me state a hard reality as you, as people look at churches. In your notes, I said it this way. It's a sad fact. Local churches can lose a vision for making disciples. Churches age. And it's not just about years. It's about a mentality. They lose a vision for the Great Commission. You know, I'm getting older and my vision is changing as normal. I think it's fairly, Jerry, is that kind of normal as you get older? <laughs> uh, I, sometimes I forgot my cheaters up here. Sometimes I carry a, you know, some cheaters up here. My font has gone from 12 to 13 on my notes. But apply that churches also can lose vision. And oftentimes churches don't deal well with poor eyesight. See, the focus then becomes on what's up close, what's the immediate, but they don't look out there. The going looking out there becomes blurry. And at times then we just focus on the gathered church and it gets harder to look out. So it leads to aging and health issues in an individual local church. Uh, It's ironic because on Monday morning in my inbox, I received an article, a blog, and the title of the blog was this, Why Dying Churches Die. Let me put it on the screen, some of the reasons. Copy these off. Here's what he said. Dying churches die because they refuse to admit that they're sick, very sick. You know, there's people that gather on Sunday morning that there's nothing wrong with us, and yet they can't hear. They have no vision. Second one, they're still waiting on the magic bullet pastor. He went on to say that congregations are looking. If we just got the right guy, then you know what? We're going to get healthy again. And pastor after pastor parades through those churches over and over again. The third one, they fail to accept responsibility. And it's here where they blame, you know, the community's coming so hard that 
the reason that they're not coming is because of them. And you go, no, churches actually default, default into a victim-type place. Or, you know, it's the five pastors that all came and left. That's the reason why we're stuck. But the fourth one, they're not willing to change at all. At all. The author um, of, of this blog, he does assessments. He'll go into a church and they'll do an assessment as to the health of a local church. And in one of these particular churches, the church wasn't real thrilled with the assessment that he gave them. And, and one of the gals during this time, he said, was she, she made this statement. She asked if they would have to, in the, in the change that was needed, she asked if they would have to look at the words of a hymn on a screen instead of the hymnal if we made these changes. And he said within six months, that church had closed its doors. They're not willing to change at all. And then the fifth one, their solutions are all inwardly focused. See, the the solutions is not about disciple-making. It really has to do with comfort. What will we accept to just get back to some former level? It's dreaming back to 1995 or 72 or 65 or even before that. If we could just go back to where we were, then we would be fine. I want to show you the quote that he ended the blog with. He said, these churches, these are the ones that are dying, are increasing in numbers Culture indeed has little patience with a me-focused congregation, much less so than, say, 15 years ago. There's been a switch. When people come to a church, if they sense it's me-dominated, just about the local church, they won't stay. Is there hope for these churches? Will these dying congregations indeed die? I've seen God intervene a few times in such situations, but in every case the church has turned its face to him and forsaken all their own preferences, desires, and human-centered traditions. But most dying churches will die. I pray that your church, if it is indeed on the path to death, will be the rare exception to the glory of God. You know, in this community, there is going to be a ton of churches, a number of churches that in 10 to 15 years, they they will be dead. But when people take the looks at at the struggles that churches have, I don't know if you catch this, there are patterns within churches that exist, phases that a church will go through. There's these life cycles. And if you got on your notes, turn that over, because I want to talk through just briefly this idea that there's these phases that a church goes through and these critical junctions where they have to really understand if they're going to be effective in disciple-making. The first is the birth stage. And it's this, it's when you think back even to a church like ours, there was a period of years and years ago where there was a determination, there was a commitment of a gathering of a group of people, and they were going to bring Christ to the community. And they gathered, there was deep commitment to each other, a deep commitment to the gospel, and there was, they prayed and the desire and there was passion and energy saying, we are going to go after people out there. And the one key component of this phase is that in the birthing stage, a church is forced 
to have to walk by faith and take chances, to trust God. They're forced to, kind of like Moses going up to the sea and, you know, is he going to put his foot in and and then it's going to divide. It was a dependence on God that has to happen if they're going to move. See, that's during this birth phase. There's this passion of going, we're going to follow Jesus and he's going to walk ahead of us. And they walk by faith. And as that faith that phase begins to change a little bit, then it jumps into a new phase. It's called the growth phase. And it could be numerical, not all the time, but there's a place where the spiritual changes of the lives of people are happening. The family is growing. More people are involved. There's opportunities for ministry. There's a diversity that takes place in these churches. And with diversity, there's also the temptation for more conflict in this phase. More disagreements. When your family grows a little bigger, guess what? More opportunities to fight. But there's something going on in the growth stage. There's an excitement. They want people to come and join the family. And this group realizes that God is he's changing people's lives. They can see it. And it's an exciting place to be for a church, but all of a sudden, it finds it where they become a little bit more stable. They're kind of figuring out who they are. And there's this piece then that what can slide in is a type of satisfaction. They feel good. And yes, they go, boy, God is good here among us. But there's something that sneaks in, and it's comfort, a comfort level. And yes, you sit back and you nod your head and go, man, God is really good. He's really good. But when they hit this comfort stage, it's here that a church can begin to plateau. I'm not talking numbers. You could still be growing a bit. You can plateau spiritually speaking. And it's here where the vision of making disciples begins to leak away. The passion begins to dissipate. Not fast. It can be very slow. And more and more of the shift in the comfort phase is that there's a movement from the people that aren't here to those that are gathered here. It's about the needs that are here. Now, sometimes they couch it and go, well, we're just focusing on going deeper. And if the deeper is going to be more effective, great. But usually that's not in this phase what they mean. They're, they're, they're saying this. It's, I just don't, I don't want to be feel that feeling of insecurity. I, I, I need to, we need to stay the same. At, at this phase, people have their group of friends in a church core friends, and budgets can be solid, and giving can be good, but that idea of comfort comfort and satisfaction just slides into a church. And there's one other key piece that can happen in this component. It's a resistance to step out in faith, an unwillingness to take risks for the kingdom. If they look back to the birthing stages of a church, They had to trust God. And now in the comfort phase, yeah, but what about, we think this is 
you catch what goes on. See, it leads to actually walking by sight, not by faith, as a, as a gathering of people. And it's the fear of losing the comfort and the losing the feeling of, of security. And at that point, there's a decline, spiritually speaking, within the life of the church, a slow leak. And it's a stage where the congregation has lost their desire for new visions, new goals, new emphasis on the Great Commission. Everything seems still happy. They're comfortable. They're satisfied. They can still say that God has blessed them with such a good congregation, but without knowing it, they're actually in decline. And you'll notice they're, they're on the same level. That's what people don't quite realize. There's a very subtle thing that's taking place. But the vision to make disciples has been lost. The passion for the lost is not as strong as it was. The passion for those that need transformation and need people in their lives, new people, has been lost. And you hear things like this. I heard this because I think my former church was right at this stage. You know, it's time for the young people to serve. You know, we did it when we were young. We served in a nursery. Now the young, the young need to take their turn. That language is a bad sign. But very subtly here, if we could just get back to the, to the good old days 10, 15, 20 years ago. But it's at this point, if a church does not seek God's face, if people aren't willing to pray and ask, what does God want in the process of making disciples, it has the potential to go over that and for the steam to pick up and move faster and faster toward the surviving phase. And the surviving phase literally is what it's all about, survival. Now people want to change things. They're a little bit more open to it. But the purpose of surviving is not about a new vision at all. The purpose is to resurrect back to the comfort level. You know, I, I was at my son's, uh, son's gathering a couple of years ago. Andy works with trying to stir churches to have a vision toward college and young career, that millennial group. And in this gathering, there was probably uh, six or seven churches represented. And one particular church, it was very interesting. I didn't catch it. Actually, he caught it later on and mentioned it to me. And he said this, Dad, did you catch the reason why they were there? They were there with the idea, we need to start a ministry to the millennials, to the younger generation. But the reason that was stated was this, we're getting old. The reason we're going to go after this group is so that we would not be old. And, and here's what was missing. They really didn't have a vision for the next generation. Their vision was, don't get old. And ultimately, they're probably going to get old and slide away into irrelevancy. See, but if you struggle with survival, if you don't make hard choices at that point, you understand the potential is then to move into that last phase. It's the walking dead stage. The walking dead. They become spiritual zombies, and they don't even know it. 
They can bring in leadership with great vision, and it's almost impossible to resurrect a congregation at that point. Uh, there was a church in Brainerd that hit this phase. And uh, the churches started in the late 1800s, one of the founding churches in that community, and they had come to a place where they were walking zombies. They were a dead church. Probably 30, 40 people. The reason that I know this is because they started to restart, and this is the place where Deanna and I jumped in for about six, seven months. But they decided, they go, we need a heart transplant as a church. And what they decided to do is they're going, we need to sell our facility, sell the church, and move to somewhere different to start something completely different. They joined with actually a recovery ministry that was in the community. They were meeting at this space. They ended up buying that space and renting it for a while, and they bought it. But they said, we got to, it's dead, heart transplant, something new. And, and Bob, the pastor, who I knew well, I worked with them for a number of months. It's interesting that the day that they moved from that location, that physical church, to that new spot, the Sunday that they moved, only about a third of them would come. Two-thirds could not leave the building and join a gathering of people. The people were irrelevant. It's they couldn't leave the space. And, and that their space, that church died. Could not be resuscitated. What does God want for every local church? I'm convinced that he says, I want to build my church. He does not want churches to head over that cliff and just move towards survival. See, I think the key question is, what does God want for every local church, including us? What is our future going to be? It has to include the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all our heart. It has to include that unity of Christ with one another. But at some point, we also have to begin to ask, what does it mean to make disciples? Effectively, so that students' lives are changing, that marriages are changing. Spiritual transformation is taking place where there's new passion, new energy. There's new concern for the lost, for the hurting that's in, commu in the community. There's spiritual lives. There's, there's so much brokenness in our community. Do we see that? Or are we making disciples and allowing ourselves to become just comfortable church where it's about us and our needs? See, the, the fact is when Jesus said, I have complete authority and power, and I want you to go make disciples. It means it's not about us. It's about the other. The marriages that need to be healed. The parents that need to learn how to parent well. Yeah, college and young career that needs to be connected to relationships with other adults where they're hooked in and their lives are changing as a result of those relationships. Let me put a statement on the screen to end here. Just for you to ponder, whenever a church allows the Holy Spirit to reignite the church family with a renewed passion for loving God, the great commandment, for a deep unity, that's John 17, and for the great commission of making disciples, the kingdom of God grows 
and Jesus builds his church. Let's stand and pray.